Welcome to this episode of Out of the Best Books, the podcast where we deep dive into classic literature and have conversations about what we've learned and discovered along the way. We love all things books and reading, and we want to share our love of the classics with you. We hope to inspire you to read along with us and join in the conversation. I'm Laura. And I'm Amity. Let's get started. Over the next several weeks, we are going to be covering probably, well, definitely the most philosophical book, arguably the heaviest book that we've done to date, and it is Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Most people know who C.S. Lewis is, and especially they'll connect him to probably some of his most famous works, The Chronicles of Narnia. But he also wrote a bunch of other books that are very deeply philosophical and religious, and they just make you really think he was such an intelligent, bright, wonderful man. Lots of extensive works. I think we're going to begin by talking about the preface to his book, because it kind of gives a little bit of background over why this is this book is even a thing, because it didn't actually start out as him writing it. Yeah. So he did like some radio productions, shows or whatever during World War II. It was these short little episodes, I guess, about Christianity. One thing that was interesting is in the beginning, he talks about how this book wasn't, he didn't set out to write it, but like it's kind of formatted like a radio show would be. And so like at the beginning of each chapter, he kind of recaps what he had done the last episode because it'd probably been a week since he'd been on. Just thinking about the time period that this would have come out then, like during World War II. And he brings it up a couple of times. Yes. And maybe I'll kind of integrate some of the forward into this, because in my version of the book, there is both a preface by C.S. Lewis and then a foreword by Kathleen Norris. And the foreword was written recently, and she is giving us some context. And so she said that he was asked by BBC to do this series. And so the series actually ran between 1942 to 1944. And it was because of the war. It was 24 years after World War I in which C.S. Lewis had served as an infantryman. He was in the trenches and experienced all of that horror. In fact, what many scholars talk about is how like both he and J.R.R. Tolkien, who are good friends and contemporaries, they wrote their respective books sort of in response to their war experiences. So you've got The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings from Tolkien, and you've got Chronicles of Narnia from C.S. Lewis, which are very war heavy, but it's sort of them making sense of the experiences they had. So anyway, this is just not that long after World War I. So, and in World War II, C.S. Lewis took up duties as an air raid warden and gave talks to men in the Royal Air Force who knew that after just 13 bombing missions, most of them would be declared dead or missing. So he's talking to people that they knew they weren't going to last that long. That Those were just the statistics. That, that was just the numbers they were working with. And so um, he was invited by BBC to give a series of wartime broadcasts on Christian faith. So that's kind of where this came from. So he just kind of talks about how He's not really talking about any specific denomination. He's not trying to like convince you to join any certain specific specific sect of Christian religion, but he's just, it's mere Christianity. (laughs) Like it's the basics. And I think I read somewhere that he wrote this for believers and non-believers, like for everybody. So this is just explaining Christianity. I liked the little description. He talks about some words like a gentleman. A gentleman used to be 
the name of someone who had a coat of arms and some landed property. And then it became like, like a compliment, right? And so like, if you liked somebody, he was a gentleman. So now the word gentleman is like, not a fact, but how somebody felt about you. Yeah. It's more of an opinion. Yes. And I think that's what's happened to the word Christianity. And that's, like, that's exactly his point. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. A Christian. So he says, when a word ceases to be a term of description and becomes merely a term of praise, it no longer tells you facts about the object. It only tells you about the speaker's attitude to the object. I just thought that was really interesting. Like to just think about how, when you say you're a Christian, what does it actually mean? But then what do people think? Well, they immediately start judging you or they think, a Christian is higher or lower than somebody else or right. So it becomes a term that describes what kind of a person you are. It does become full of judgment instead of just this factual. These are my tenets of belief. And later in this section, I'll bring it back to that. But like talks about how we all fail to be what we want to be. So why are we judging each other? Because we're all failures. Yeah. And I really think he, explains things well. There's no question you understand what he's getting at. Absolutely. It does. As I was reading through, I was like, he's explaining it in such a way that even a child really could understand. You you know that somebody really understands their subject matter if they're able to explain it to even a child in a way that the child can understand. And that's, that's what he does here. He lays it out. He doesn't try to be too wordy. He doesn't try to be lofty or extremely academic. He's just very carefully and methodically lays it out and sometimes repetitiously. He'll sometimes say the same thing in different ways and over and over so that we're reminded of what he's talked about before and then can move forward from there. I I don't know. I just, I just think it's, it's brilliant. Well, yeah, he says it several ways and then he gives like an analogy or a story that will like illustrate what he's saying. Which is wonderful too, because that is very much the way that Jesus himself taught was using analogies so that we could understand the deeper meaning and the deeper principles. Yes. One thing I I do want to go back to the other thing about the words. I loved this quote, Mm -hmm. the word Christian. He says, if once we allow people to start spiritualizing and refining, or as they might say, deepening the sense of the word Christian, it too will speedily become a useless word. It is not for us to say who in the deepest sense is or is not close to the spirit of Christ. We do not see into men's hearts. We cannot judge and are indeed forbidden to judge. And if we are Christians, then we, or I don't know, here we go into judging, but like we won't do that if we really are. Well, if we truly believe what we say we believe. Yes. And are actually living that, but we're going to go into how like, there are things that we believe, but we don't live that way. <laughs> we just don't. Yeah, it's interesting. I love to where he talks about sort of this hallway of Christianity in a way and like deciding which sect or denomination is the right one. And he's like, you must keep on praying for light. And of course, even in the hall with like this hall of Christianity, you must begin trying to obey the rules, which are common to the whole house. You must be asking which door is the true one. And he said, your question should never be. And I see this all the time, which, okay, it's not me judging. It's just factual. I see this all the time. Do I like this kind of service? That's not the question that we should be asking when deciding which denomination we should join ourselves to. Instead, it should be, are these doctrines true? Is holiness here? 
does my conscience move me towards this? Is my reluctance to knock at this door due to my pride or my mere taste or my personal dislike of this particular doorkeeper? And I think that that's really what he's trying to guide us to through this book, at least the part that I've read so far, is like finding truth. And that truth supersedes all. That should be what we are always seeking for. Yeah, I, that's what I was going to ask you if you wanted to talk about was the hall because I I really liked that analogy and then how we shouldn't judge others that go into different rooms that we're all yeah. in the hall because it is a personal journey. We're not deciding anybody else's journey. Yeah, but I know just even the preface was like, oh my gosh, that's this is amazing. Just a couple of things I wanted to point out from the foreword, which again was written by Kathleen Norris. I'm not totally sure when it was written, but she says that. Even though, you know, this was written in 19 or not written, but it, it is it was an oral presentation and then taken and put together into a book later. But she's like, look, this is very relevant today. All of our notions of modernity and progress and all our advances in technological expertise have not brought an end to war. So we can look at things and say, look how progressive we are. But guess what? There's not an end to war. There's not an end to human suffering because she says that the problem C.S. Lewis insists is us. And we're kind of refusing to see that. And something that sort of sets him apart is the fact that he is, and he even says that he's speaking with no authority except his own experience and his observations and his incredible ability to think very deeply and laterally about things. He was not always a Christian. He used to be an atheist. And it says that he had accepted the task of doing these presentations because he believed that England, which had come to consider itself part of a post-Christian world, had never in fact been told in basic terms what the religion is about. So I don't know why, but that just, it made me think about the history of religion in England. And I mean, this could be applied to like every European country every country in general where religion takes over and that is pretty much universal but just everybody was told well you have to believe this way or you're going to be burned at the stake you have to do what the king says you're going to be beheaded you know so like you had people who were doing their best and trying to believe this way but but it was also like this very sort of sketchy balancing act that was like okay are we believing this way today? Are we believing this way today? Like what's going to keep us alive? Do you know what I'm saying? And of course it came through that, but who was talking to them about what it was that they really believed? Because they also went through this period of like, you don't believe this way. Well, maybe you're not going to physically be killed, but you're going to be facing fire and brimstone in the hereafter. You know, it was very much fear-based instead of like, this is what it means to be a Christian. And this is what we really believe. And so that's, that's what he was laying out for everybody. Yeah. It makes me like happy that we have freedom of religion here. That we don't live in a time where it's like, you're going to believe this way or good luck. Book one. No, chapter one. <laughs> book one, chapter one. That's what it is. Yeah. So book one, though, so this is divided into, I believe, four books. And each book has several chapters. So we're diving into book one today, and it is called Right and Wrong as a Clue to the Meaning of the Universe. And this is not light stuff. And so we're just going to do the best that we can. You could spend hours and hours and hours on each section of these <laughs> Just, we're just going to give you an idea of, of what this is about and a few of our thoughts on it. So I was thinking this would have been a great book to have an expert come on with us. <laughs> yes. Yes. 
I just don't know any. No, I know. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> um, in fact, as I was reading it, I was just like, this is something that should be studied by everybody because it's incredible. I don't know how many people have actually studied it, but it would be a really wonderful one to have a study group for. So chapter one, the law of human nature. He starts out just talking about how like, what is right and wrong? We can say to somebody, you took my seat and that's wrong. And that person will be like, well, you had left. That entire interaction is based on us believing that that there is a right and wrong. And he says, whenever we say someone is doing something wrong, like especially when we accuse someone of doing something wrong, you took my seat. We are assuming they know about and accept a certain standard of behavior. Otherwise, there's no point in, in accusing them of doing something wrong. If they If there is no standard of behavior, then who cares that they took your seat? And why should they care? And they wouldn't be making an excuse for taking the seat. They wouldn't be saying, well, I only took it because you had left and I didn't know you were sitting here or something. They wouldn't be making that excuse unless they also understood that there is this code of right and wrong. They would just say something like, to hell with your standard. I don't care what you're saying. He says, when we are accused of wrongdoing, we almost always make an excuse as to why we didn't really do anything wrong. Again, indicating that we know that there is a standard. Again, we wouldn't make an excuse unless we knew about this standard. He talks about quarreling. And when we quarrel with somebody, they're quarreling with us. We're trying to figure out who is right and who is wrong. Who cares who's right and wrong unless there is an absolute right and an absolute wrong. Now, a lot of times in quarreling, you okay, well, that's a whole other different argument, but there wouldn't be quarreling unless there is also right and wrong. Yeah, because you're trying to prove the other person wrong. So right. There has to be a right. Or there wrong. has to be a right and there has to be a wrong. Then he goes in and he talks about there's different types of laws. He said that initially people, probably meaning like philosophers and teachers and things, said that this basic knowledge of right and wrong was just called the law of nature. But he's giving it a new nomenclature. He's calling it the law of human nature because we're all subjected to laws that we simply can't disobey. Like we have no choice. But the law of human nature we can choose to disobey, and we do all the time. He says, people thought that everyone knew this law of nature or the law of human nature, and it didn't need to be taught. It's just something that was natural. They thought that the human idea of decent behavior was obvious to everyone, and I believe they were right. Like, there's just this code of conduct that everyone should obey. But why? Why is that even a thing? He said, what was the sense in saying the enemy were in the wrong unless right is the real thing which the Nazis at bottom knew as well as we did and ought to have practiced? This is an interesting concept. It's something I was listening to a commentator the other day talking about the Israel-Palestine conflict, and I'm not going to get into even like what side he was talking about, except that he was saying that he did have a lot to say about the terrorist group Hamas, simply because he's like, this is the only time you will ever hear me say this, that this group is worse than the Nazis, because the Nazis were evil and they were horrible, but they knew they were. They knew they were. How do we know they were? Because they tried to hide what they were doing. They knew that what they were doing was wrong. Oh. They continued to do it. How did they? How do we know they knew what they were doing is wrong? Because they were trying to hide it. You don't try to hide something unless you know that it is wrong. And even when it was like down to the last, they continued trying to hide it. They were burning things, destroying things, burning papers. They were trying to hide it. This terrorist group is not trying to hide what they're doing. They're broadcasting it. 
So that was his entire point in saying that this is actually worse. But yeah, so this goes back to the point that even the Nazis at bottom knew that they were wrong. That's really interesting because we've been having discussions in my house this week about this book. I was talking to my husband and I was talking to somebody else about it. Oh, my sister. And we were talking about the people who've been in trouble lately for like abusing children or killing their children or whatever. And we were like, you can't really know what their motives were. And we'll talk about it later because he goes into like the witchcraft or like the burning the witches thing. But he was just saying that those people believed that the witches were bad. And so they thought they were doing what was right. And they were also doing it out in the open. So I was like, well, you don't know what's inside these people's heads. Are they delusional and they think they're doing what's right? Or do they know what they're doing is wrong? And then I realized just now when you were saying that they were hiding it, they knew it was wrong. It's crazy, isn't it? I'd never thought about that before. And I think that that's why they became so just devoid of all conscience because they continued to do what was wrong when they knew it was wrong. And they just, it's awful. He said, I know that some people say the idea of a law of nature or decent behavior known to all men is unsound because different civilizations and different ages have had quite different moralities. We hear this all the time. Well, those people that, specific tribe in Africa doesn't believe that like this is just something that's man that's made by people in the west or whatever else right he's like that's not true he's like yeah there's differences in moralities and he's going to go into that in just a minute but they don't really amount to anything like across the board ideas of right and wrong whether he says it's whether the Egyptians the Babylonians the Hindus the Chinese the Greeks the Romans that random tribe in Africa like There is still this overarching sense of what is right, what is wrong, this code of conduct. He talks about how he's like, yeah, men have differed as regards what people you ought to be unselfish to, whether it was only your own family or your fellow countrymen or everyone, but they have always agreed that you ought not to put yourself first. Okay. This is what he's talking about. There is always this current, this line of thinking that is common across all cultures, all ages of decent people. And he says, men have differed as to whether you should have one wife or four. Okay. Yeah, that's true. But they have always agreed that you must not simply have any woman you liked. That is always wrong. And then I think it's really interesting. And I feel like we see this all the time, again, making this very relevant today. He's like, you'll find people who say they don't believe in right and wrong. But as soon as something wrong is done to them, they'll backtrack in a second. They'll behave any way that they want to and say, well, there is no right and wrong. But as soon as they themselves are wronged, they'll be like, no, that's not fair. No, that's not okay. Oh, so that was wrong. So if you believe in fairness, then you believe in right. You believe in right and wrong. Absolutely. There's no getting around it. He also talks about how everyone breaks the very laws of nature they expect everyone else to follow. So we have these, this code of conduct, this law of decent behavior. We expect everyone else to follow it, but we ourselves do not follow it because, I mean, we break it all the time. We all fall short. We all mess up. And if we're accused of breaking these laws, we have this long string of excuses for why we should be an exception. But again, he's repeating himself and I'm repeating myself. If we don't believe these laws of human nature, why would we need an excuse? Last thing, he talks about how when we have, when we do behave badly, we have these excuses and we'll put it down to like, it's our bad temper that uh, we put that down to being tired or worried or hungry. But whenever we do something good, we're just like, oh, that's just me. I'm just, I'm just that good. I think that was really funny. So when it comes down to it, two facts, we know the law of human nature. We know the law of decent behavior and we break it all the time. That's chapter one, the law of human nature. 
he opens the chapters with what he talked about before and he closes them with like, okay, this is what I just said in yes. like two quick sentences. Reminder. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the summary. It's, it's very good. If you didn't get it, you'll get it at the end. So chapter two is about objections to the fact that there's a right and wrong. Like, anyway, so it's called some some objections. I love the thought provoking things that we, I guess we know, but we've never thought about in this way or put into words. It's just fascinating. Some people say that the moral law is kind of like a herd instinct. An instinct is when we have a strong desire or want to act in a certain way. So I was thinking about like, I don't usually have a strong desire to do the right thing. <laughs> I mean, sometimes, but like a lot of times it's easier not to do the right thing. And so that couldn't be an instinct. So he gives this example. You hear a cry from someone that needs help. You'll feel two desires. The first is to help them. And the second is to keep out of danger. And I've thought about that a lot because I'm squeamish or whatever. If somebody gets really hurt, my instinct is to run. I don't want to run to them and help them. I want out mm -hmm. because I feel like I can't handle what's going on. But, but something inside you tells you that you need to help the person and suppresses that instinct to run away. So like, I guess in a situation, I probably would run towards the person if it actually happened. But in my mind, I'm like, I want out. And the third thing is the instinct can't be either of those two things. I mean, I guess they're instincts, but like something above that has to decide what we're going to do. So that is not instinct is his whole entire point. Because right. yes, we do have these instincts, but there's something more, which is not instinct, which tells us to suppress one and go with the other. Do the other. Isn't that interesting? I love too how he equates it to like a piano just because I play the piano. So the options are like keys on the piano. And the part of us that chooses is like the sheet music that tells us which keys to play. Sometimes the keys are right and sometimes they're wrong. And it just depends on what is on the sheet music, which one is right and which one's wrong in that moment. Another argument is that usually our instinct to save ourselves would be stronger, but often we choose the weaker instinct, the one that we feel is right. That's what I was saying earlier, I guess, that like most of the time I want to do what's easier and not right. <laughs> yeah, because that's everybody's instinct. Like it is. Yeah. The easier path is not usually the right one. The right one. Right. And so the final argument that he brings up is that there is not any instinct that is right or wrong 100% of the time. Like it depends on the situation. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about this with people who in politics or that have strong feelings about politics. And they might say, this situation is like the only thing I care about, right? And I'm going to do whatever I can to help it. But then they do things that are wrong to hold up that absolute. Yeah, so totally. You could hurt somebody else because of your beliefs about something. You could, anyways, so that doesn't work because what you thought originally was important and you probably usually is the good choice, but it changes. So that, yeah. And that's exactly, because I, I love what he says there. And that's a, a beautiful illustration of that is the most dangerous thing you can do is to take any one impulse of your own nature and set it up as the thing you ought to follow at all costs. And this is the problem that we find throughout history, yeah. isn't it? These ideas and these causes that people decided that they needed to follow at all costs, even at the cost of human life, at the cost yeah. of relationship, the cost of everything, most frequently at the cost of human life, right? Which is 
why we've had so many issues. So he's warning against that. So if morality were instinctive, then there probably would be some instinct that was always moral, but there's not because it changes. So it's like he's on the piano. None of them are 100 percent right all of the time. And the sheet music tells us which one is right and which ones aren't. So our moral, the natural law, the natural human law is what tells us in each situation, which one is right and which one is wrong. Humans have so much more ability for complexity than we give ourselves credit for, because you absolutely fully have the ability to think something's wrong and still love people who do that thing. Or you can think something's wrong and sometimes you do that thing. You can also know that people who do something that you think is wrong, they are still a good person because we are all so flawed. We can't just say, well, you doing that one thing, that makes you a fully bad person because there's so much more to a person than just one bad thing. I think the problem is a lot of times religious people get labeled as having this absolute Right. Mm-hmm. When yeah. they we aren't given the op, the benefit of the doubt in thinking, but we're human and we have the ability to choose what's right and wrong in each situation. And so yeah. to label people as like bad because you say you think that they're like this, that's not right either. <laughs> no, it's like it's so complicated. It makes my brain hurt a little bit, but it's yes. <laughs> that's why it's just better to not label anybody and not judge anybody because it's way too like we don't have the ability to do we literally don't have the ability to do it. We can't. Right. We can't. Once you start diving into this deep philosophy like this, you're like, like oh, can't, can't do it. I know some people have said stuff to me about being religious or whatever. And I would say back to them. You don't know what I think. You don't know why I do the things I do or why I vote for the people I vote for. You can't label people and put, I don't know. You just can't say, you don't know. No, you don't. (laughs) You're suddenly assuming that people are just one dimensional and nobody is. Yeah. And we change. Nobody is. We absolutely change. So He says, there is not one of them which will not make us into devils if we set it up as an absolute guide. So you might think, Love of humanity in general was safe, but it is not. If you leave out justice, you will find yourself breaking agreements and faking evidence in trials for the sake of humanity and become in the end a cruel and treacherous man. So that's what I was saying before is like you could end up doing bad things because you're holding up this absolute thing that you're always going to support. He wants us to consider all versions of morality are basically the same. Like, I think that's what you said earlier, that we should never come first. Selfishness yeah. is probably the the measuring factor. So the very fact that we disagree on what is moral suggests that there is a correct answer to what it means to be good. And then he gives the, this is what I was talking about earlier. He gives the example of the burning witches. And some say, this is an example of how morality has changed over time. And he reminds us that the people responsible for burning the witches believed the witches were real and that they were possessed and they were doing harmful things. If modern day people believed that certain human beings made pacts with the devil, they'd probably burn those people just as our ancestors did. But we just have more knowledge now. Our morality or law of nature is the same. It's just we understand more now. And like you said, we still have war. I mean, there's still people in the world that are confused about people. War has not ended. Human suffering has not ended. So there's a lot we have not figured out. I thought that was a very interesting chapter. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So chapter three, the reality of the law. 
So again, like Laura said, they he goes back and he sort of does a little recap. So again, we know the law of nature, the law of human nature, the law of human decency. We break it. That means we are imperfect and imperfection brings with it certain consequences. I thought this was really interesting. He says, we might look at somebody and say, oh, they're imperfect or whatever, but he's like, a lot of times that just means that they're not serving a certain purpose that we want them to, or that's convenient to us. He's like, if you were looking for a tree for a specific thing, and you saw these other trees that don't meet the requirements that you need, you can't call that a bad tree just because it's not exactly the way you want it. That tree has been subject to weather and and roots and all these other factors that it's not a bad tree. It's just not what you want, right? And so it's sort of the same thing with people. We can't label them as bad just because they're not serving a certain purpose that we want them to. And I thought that was very interesting. And then he also talks about the actual laws of nature because there are many different types of laws. There's laws that there is no choice whether we follow them or not. There is the law that our heart keeps beating, you know, every second or something or less than every second, just depending on our fitness level. And that will keep happening. We have no control over that. We can't choose to make that stop course, unless it's like years of like unhealthy eating or something like that outside. So much of it is just outside of our control. But especially when it comes to laws of nature, like he specifically addresses the law of gravity. He's like, yeah, there's a name for it, but couldn't you even just call it what stones do? Like if a stone falls from a cliff, it just falls from a cliff. There's no other overarching facts. It's just, that's what stones do. There is no choice here. We can call it a law of of nature, a law of gravity, but there's nothing that's going to alter it. There's no choice. That is just what happens. I was thinking about this as I was kind of um, writing up my summaries. And and I just thought that a lot of it is really about our terminology. Laws of humans are very, very different from laws of nature because the laws of nature tell you what will happen. That is going to happen. And as he says here, the laws of human nature tell you what ought to happen. So law is probably just not a good name for it when it comes down to it. Because yeah, there's laws of physics, but then there's laws of humans. For example, the laws of the road, you know, you've got a speed limit because that's what people ought to do to be the most safe. People break the speed limit all the time. They absolutely have a choice. There are consequences that come with breaking that choice. Sometimes, again, that is something that is also not a law. You're not always going to be punished for breaking that law, you know? Yeah, if you Um, were, you wouldn't speed. Absolutely. If it's something that just like your car just suddenly broke in half as soon as you start speeding, you wouldn't speed anymore. But it's not that way. They're very variable. And there's a lot more to it because there's, there's humans involved. So there's always going to be some variables. So again, he says, sometimes we simply value behavior that is useful to us. He says, in war, each side may find a traitor on the other side very useful. But though they use him and pay him, they still regard him as human vermin. They still actually think that he's a horrible person because he's a traitor, but they'll still use him because his behavior is valuable to them. So you cannot say that what we call decent behavior in others is simply the behavior that happens to be useful to us. 
And as for decent behavior in ourselves, I suppose it is pretty obvious that it does not mean the behavior that pays because it doesn't just because you behave well does not mean that you get a payout for it. You don't always get rewarded for good behavior. You don't always get punished for bad behavior, but you still are trying for the good behavior, right? It's like if you found money, I mean, the right thing to do is to try to find the owner, but you would get to keep the money if you didn't try to find the owner. Yeah. Like you said, the payout doesn't happen often when we do choose what we ought to do. Yes. Because he says that the payout, like you say, it's not for us individually, but it's for the payout is to the human race as a whole. Because the more people that behave decently, the safer our society is going to be, the better our society is going to be, and the longer it's going to survive. If we ask, why ought I to be unselfish? And you reply, because it's good for society. Because what he's saying is it's actually not just enough that we just do things for the goodness of society. We may then ask, why should I care what's good for society, except when it happens to pay me personally? And then you will have to say, because you ought to be unselfish which simply brings us back to where we started. If a man asked what was the point of playing football, and he's referring to soccer, it would not be much good saying in order to score goals. For trying to score goals is the game itself. That's that's the game. That's what it is. So hard to explain. But trying to score the goals is the game itself, not the reason for the game. Being unselfish is the game of human society. But what is the reason for it? What is Why are we even doing it? This kind of hurts um, my head. It does. And he's like, this is where I'm going to stop. Men ought to be unselfish. They ought to be fair. But then he says, it begins to look as if we shall have to admit that there is more than one kind of reality, that in this particular case, there's something above and beyond the ordinary facts of men's behavior. And yet quite definitely real, a real law, which none of us made, but which we find pressing on us. These are not human laws that we find ourselves needing to follow, but it is something that we find ourselves needing to follow them. Why? Yeah, I liked from that chapter at the beginning where it talked about how like there's a gap between how people should behave and how we actually do behave. Always. Always. And the challenge of being a human being or more specifically for this book, a Christian, is that humans are aware of what we should do, but we don't. Yeah. And it's not to say that we never do. Obviously, we do. We've had civilizations that have gone on for a long time, but we find that they crash when especially the leaders, but also the majority of people go away from this code of decent behavior. I think that's just really important to to think about with other people is that we all make mistakes. And what's interesting is we're the first ones to make excuses when we make mistakes, but not when other people do. The other thing I thought of when he talked about was the intent. A lot of times we judge other people because we think that they intended to hurt us, but if they hurt us and they didn't intend to, then we wouldn't be so mad at them. Does that make sense? Yes, definitely. Well, he talked, was that in this, was that in my chat? I thought it was, but maybe not. He he talks about like, we're more mad at the person who tries to trip us, but doesn't than at the person who accidentally trips us and we actually get hurt because it is, it's about the intent. We'll see if that comes up because maybe I'm wrong, but I thought it was in that chapter. chapter. I'm not sure. So chapter four. In this chapter, he's going to prove that the existence of a moral law proves the existence of some kind of moral God. Now, this also, I think it's chapter five that like totally broke my brain. So Mm -hmm. I'm glad you had to do that one. 
<laughs> I was like, huh? I kept the summary for it pretty short because I was like, <laughs> I read it twice and I was like, I got some of it, but I still don't understand the end. So there's two ways of looking at the ex- existence of the universe. And later he says there's actually more ways, but to make it short, he's just going mm. with these two ways. First, the materialist view and that matter and time just happen to exist and have always existed and nobody knows why. So basically, we're just here for some reason. There's nothing behind it. It's It's just an accident. Yeah. And then the second one is the religious view that the universe was created by a conscious being, a being who had a plan for what the universe should be. Not just a being, but a being that has a plan and like orchestrated it all so for as long as there's been people there's been these two theories but people believe both things and the science can't prove or disprove the existence of a creative being like you just can't and he goes into that a little bit and it's also kind of complicated about why you can't prove it scientifically if someone was studying humans and they didn't have access to our inner thoughts they could only see what we do you could say that there's no law because we're always doing different things. It changes all the time what we choose to do. The difference here is that we actually have an insider view because we are the humans and we know about this moral law because inside of us, we know there's something, a moral choice that we should make in each situation. If there is a creative being, then the existence of the world isn't actually proof that the being exists. And I thought that was kind of interesting because a lot of times religious people say, well, isn't the world like an example of how that God exists? Mm. I mean, but he's like, that's not enough. He's like, it just means that the being is, or that, I don't know, he explained it like a good artist because it's beautiful. So that's not a good, a good argument that there is a God and that the being couldn't show us proof that it exists because science would just explain it away. And I think that happens a lot. It does. With people that don't believe in God, like, oh, this happened. Well, you can explain it this way. This is why it happened. So the proof that there is a being, the proof has to be inside of us. The fact that we have an influence of a way that we should live is the proof. That's so like deep. (laughs) So the proof is as an influence or a command trying to get us to behave in a certain way. And so that's the moral law. And that's why the moral law proves that there has to be something, something like a mind is what he says. Yes, It's like there's something that has a plan and has put us here. So he still, I loved this story. I thought it was so interesting. He tells a story of a man that is delivering little paper packets at each house. And this man happens to be wearing blue. So he's a mailman. And he thinks that there's letters in all the packets because there's a letter in his. So for instance, we go get our mail and there's always letters in it. So we just assume that there's letters in everybody else's mailboxes, right? If a man objected saying, you haven't seen what's in those other packets, then he said, I would say, of course not. I shouldn't expect to because they're not addressed to me. I'm explaining the packets I'm not allowed to open by the one I am allowed to open. Mm -hmm. So he's only allowed to look inside of himself as a man. And he knows that he's under this law of choosing the right or wrong. He knows that somebody wants him to behave in a certain way. And then he also says, but there has to be a sender of the letters. Somebody had to be behind it. And so he calls it a power behind the facts, a director, a guide. And he says, as far as he's described, that there is something which is directing the universe and which appears in me as a law urging me to do right and making me feel responsible and uncomfortable when I do wrong. This has to be a mind. 
it couldn't be matter because a bit of matter can't give instruction. So he ends with saying that, you know, he only mentioned the two views, but then there's other ones like the life force philosophy, creative evolution, emergent evolution. So, I mean, I guess you could go dive into those things and but he said it, he would be talking too long if he went into those. But I think that's a really good description that people either think it just everything just happened or there's something behind it. To me, a pretty solid case for why when it comes down to it, there is something behind it. And I, I did. I really loved it when he was talking about oh, there was he says if there was a controlling power outside the universe, it could not show itself to us as one of the facts inside the universe. The only way in which we could expect it to show itself would be inside ourselves as an influence or command trying to get us to behave in a certain way. So it can't just be like this thing that we see inside the universe. It has to be within ourselves. So just what I thought of is something that we refer to as the light of Christ. He even says that he's not even specifically talking about the God of Christian theology yet. He's just making the argument that there is something more there is a mind, not just a chance. But as I was reading this, I was like, this is how we talk about it is this light that every man does have that helps them to know almost instinctively what is right and what is wrong. But it's not in, like we said, it's not actually instinct because it's actually higher than that. It's something that helps us to suppress instinct and instead go with, well, suppress some instincts and go with others. Anyway, so, but it is, it's that compass that helps us to understand what is right and what is wrong. I just thought okay. it was so interesting that they, I often think, well, proof of God is that we are here and that mm-hmm. everything works out. And he mentions that in that chapter, everything works out perfectly. We're like, it's the right range of temperature for humans to live. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the fact that we can create other humans and like, I look at those things as proof that there's God, but he's like, that's not proof. I mean, he does go through and he's like, okay, this materialistic view says that all these things just happen to have just so to where suddenly we are these thinking beings. Like, I mean, it doesn't, he doesn't say that's ridiculous, but you read through it and you're like, oh, it is not feasible. Yeah. It's not enough proof though, because it can be, it can be explained away with science. Well, I mean, at least science can try. It's not successful in my <laughs> opinion because there's so much that's just left left undone. But, I would say though some people believe that science has explained it. Yes, I agree. But I think if they were to dig very deeply they'd find there's still yeah. a lot very much unanswered questions. Okay, good luck with chapter 5. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> chapter 5 is called We Have Cause to Be Uneasy. Oh boy. Just pulling out points that really did resonate with me. So he's like we often talk about how we can't turn the clock back, that we've moved forward to this point a lot in a lot of cases, leaving religion behind, um, leaving a lot of belief systems behind. But he's like, I would say that we can turn the clock back. And in a lot of cases, we should. He says, progress means getting nearer to the place where you want to be. And if you have taken a wrong turning, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. That is not progress. Progress isn't just moving forward. It's moving forward to the place that you want to be. So sometimes he's like the wisest man is the one who quickly figures out that he needs a course correction. And so he does turn the clock back. He turns around and goes back and then proceeds forward from a good place. He says that going back 
is often the quickest way on. Because then I, I think if you look at the present state of the world, it is pretty plain that humanity has been making some big mistakes. So we kind of need to go back in order to move on. And this was him speaking in 1942 to 1944. And I think that in a lot of ways, you could say that humanity is, there are some areas of improvement and there are some areas of total digression. And he says, look, I'm still not getting religious on you. We have not yet got as far as the God of any actual religion, still less the God of that particular religion called Christianity. But he says, going back to this somebody, we know two things so far about the somebody. It's the universe he has made. And from that, we know he's a great artist. The universe is a very beautiful place, but also that he's quite merciless and no friend to man for the universe is also very dangerous and terrifying. And it is. Like it's a death trap constantly. <laughs> but also, so we know that the somebody has created this universe and also that the moral, he has put the moral law into our mind. And as you talked about in chapter four, we learn more about this somebody by reflecting on this moral law than we do by reflecting on the universe. So if we want to learn about this somebody who we refer to as God, we need to think a lot more about the moral law, the moral code that we try to live by, then I'm thinking about the wonders of the universe. Although there is value to that, but if we want to learn about God, that's what we need to do. That's what, interesting what because like, think about how, how we come closer to Christ by making the right choices mm -hmm. and trying to do what he would do. So like sitting around pondering how beautiful the earth is, isn't going to get us there. Right. And it can give us a deeper appreciation. Yes. It can draw us closer to him and want to get to know him more. I think yes. that's the thing. But then we have to dive into getting to know him more. And I love this. He said, you find out more about God from the moral law than from the universe in general, just as you find out more about a man by listening to his conversation than by looking at a house he has built. And it's like, well, yeah, obviously. I love this. He says, okay. A lot of times we talk about how God is good. We need to be careful when we say that because we say he's good. That does not mean that he's soft. He's not indulgent. It says he's not sympathetic. And because the moral law is anything but indulgent. You know, yeah, we mess up all the time, but the moral law stays strict and true. It's not indulgent. It's not like, oh yeah, it's fine if you do that. It's not fine. We know it's not fine because we make excuses when we break it. And I thought this was interesting too. He's like, we, what does he say? We talk about God is good. One part of you is on his side and really agrees with his disapproval of human greed and trickery and exploitation. Like, yeah, that is right and good. But you may want him to make an exception in your own case. We do all the time. This was the part that I thought was confusing. Which part exactly? Like, I didn't understand when they said, okay, so he said that, and he said, unless the power behind the world really and unalterably detests that sort of behavior, then he cannot be good. On the other hand, we know that if there does exist an absolute goodness, it must hate most of what we do. That is the terrible fix we are in. If the universe is not governed by an absolute goodness, then all of our efforts are in the long run hopeless. I don't know. It just hurts my head, I guess. Yeah. But just in some ways, when he says goodness, he means like absolute perfection, no room for error, which is what we believe God is. I hesitate to get into too much of what we 
believe because he's not gotten there yet. Yes. But I think his point is just we need to be careful in what we assume God is. And instead, well, I'm going to read this quote. He says, we are making ourselves enemies to that goodness every day and are not in the least likely to do any better tomorrow. And so our case is hopeless again. We cannot do without it and we cannot do with it. God is the only comfort. He's also the supreme terror, the thing we most need and the thing we most want to hide from. He is our only possible ally and we have made ourselves his enemies. Some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again. They're still only playing with religion. In a lot of ways, though, as I'm reading this, I'm like, he is setting it up for the argument of Christianity, because if this is what God is, and he's, as he explained, it does make good sense that that's what God is, then that's why we need a savior. Right. Because I think this is what I, okay, now when you read that this time, I, I was thinking by him saying like, we're not going to do any better tomorrow. Mm-hmm. because we can't be perfect and we're always yeah. going to make mistakes. And so like, is that what you're saying? That that's why we need a savior is because yes, I think so. We can try and try and try and we're never going to make it. We're not exactly. And On he's like, he's like this God that is absolute goodness has to be abhorred by us because we are just not there. Like there's, and there's no way for us to be there. And therefore we need Jesus Christ who made it possible for us to change and for tomorrow to have hope that we can be better and that we maybe are not going to be absolutely perfect, but he can make up for that. Maybe that's where the goodness is because he's merciful and is going to make up the difference and we can make it even though we can't ever do, we can't ever make the right choices every time. (laughs) No. But Christ is, he's the bridge. And so just in the last part of this, he says, all I am doing is to ask people to face the facts, to understand the questions which Christianity claims to answer. So there it is. You know, we have all these questions like, okay, so therefore what, what do we do? We're all, which a lot of people, even who claim to be Christians have been like, no, well, we're doomed and we have no hope. But then as he says, they're just kind of playing with religion. They don't really even know what they believe. And he says, comfort is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth. And he just ends by saying, most of us have got over the pre-war wishful thinking about international politics, that somehow it's all going to work out. He's like, it's not. There's something more that we have to figure out. So do you think when people are looking for comfort, they're looking for there not being a law? I think so. Because comfort, I think in the way that he is describing it, is ease. That's just not what our life is about. And if there's no better way for us to live, then there's the ease because we don't have to make any choices the right any way. Any difficult decisions, yeah. Right. We can just live however we want to live. That's so interesting. Holy moly. <laughs> yeah. And book two is called What Christians Believe. So- Yes. Yeah, he set us up and now we're ready to like dive into what we actually believe, well, what Christians actually believe. I just, I love his approach because he's not, he's not denominational at all. He's just like, no, these based on the Bible, like this is what Christians believe and he's not going to do any offshoots or or anything like that. So I think I must, I read ahead a little bit. I'm sure there's lots of people who disagree with him, but I just don't know how you can. So good. I'm excited. I feel like we're going to have so much more knowledge when we're done with this. And like, yeah, I don't know. 
It'd be so good. This is exercise for the brain for sure. So our brains will be stronger. <laughs> it's really weird because it's easy to read, but it's deep and can hurt your head. Yeah, so like totally. Yes, and- he's written it in such a, a beautiful and simple and concise way. And therein lies the challenge, I guess. And there's oh, layers. It's layers. So you Very could much. read it yeah. and like understand it. And then you could read it again and like get more. And so have you had any time to read? Not for myself. Last week I talked about Outlander. Oh, yeah. I haven't even listened to it again. I don't have time. And I'm like, I don't know. Do I even, am I even invested in this? Instead, what I'm going to talk about is a couple of books that I finished with my kids this week. So one is called Children of the Long House. It's really wonderful because it's about, it's by Joseph Bruchak, who wrote quite a few books about Native American peoples. He wrote about Hiawatha and the Peacemaker. And like, of course, we have like the big poem, Hiawatha's Song. I haven't actually read that, but now I'm much more familiar with what it's all about. It was just all about bringing peace to the five Iroquois nations and the effect that that had. And I guess I'd always thought it was sort of mythical, but it wasn't. It actually was very true. And so a lot of the other books he's written are sort of like follow up to that and like how it affected people, especially um, the people of the Iroquois nations and those tribes. So this Children of the Longhouse is just this one specific tribe. And it's all about this game that they play and they're it's like centered around it's sort of a simple story. But within that, you're able to he just vividly paints this picture of how they live and their stories and their culture. And it's just, it's really wonderful. And it's a, it's a beautiful children's book. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed it. And my kids really loved it. And it was great. And where do you find stuff like this? Like I've never heard of that book. Yeah, I hadn't either. So a lot of the books that we've been reading during the school year, the past couple of years have been based on these specific curriculum that we use. Um, I discovered it a couple of years ago. It's called Beautiful Feet Books. And basically they take something like American history and they have gathered just all, all these wonderful books that will take you through the chronology, you know, these time periods to you're able to read a book that correlates with that time period. And then you talk about the history and, you know, they're pretty picky about the books that they choose and they're all really good and very educational and solid and there's no fluff there. So it like goes so, along with what you're studying for history or? Last year we did medieval history. And so we read a lot of books that went along that timeline. And then this year we're doing, I actually am doing three of their curriculum collections. And so we're doing the history of science. And so we just read a book about Archimedes. And so that was very interesting. And we're also doing geography, which is why we're, we also read The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind, which is about Malawi and Africa, but also covers like Tanzania and a lot of like that sort of African culture right there. And then for history, we're doing American history. And so it's starting with like, it started with the Vikings and then it's going into like the Native American tribes and things. So it's it's pretty cool. Like, because yeah, there were some of the books in their list that I was like, oh, I actually already have that book or I know that book or whatever. A lot of them though, I hadn't really heard of or knew about. So yeah, that yeah. sounds like something I'd want to read someday. This is really funny. So I'm reading Hello Stranger by Catherine Center. I've never read Catherine Center before, but I wanted to read a different book by her, but it wasn't available or something. And so this one came up and I'll often hear about books a lot. And then I'll start it. I'll go, oh, I've heard about this book. But, you know, I probably put it on hold six months ago or three months ago Mm -hmm. or whatever. And I don't remember. So this book was funny. It was like 
it's about face blindness. <laughs> and then I'm like, ah, I've heard this book described, but I just didn't know it was this one. The girl in it is a portrait artist. And one day she just has this seizure and she's like getting ready to do a competition where she could win $10,000 by painting this oh, wow. portrait. Mm-hmm. But she has this seizure. And then after she has a seizure, her dad tells her, oh, your mom died from this. Like they tell her she needs to have surgery. She's like, I don't, I can't have surgery. I'm busy with this competition that I have going on. So it's too much. I don't have time for it. And her dad's like, no, your mom died from this. She knew she was supposed to have the surgery. I'm not going to tell you why she didn't have the surgery, but she didn't. And then she had another episode and she died. So he's like, you're having surgery. He's like a surgeon too. And he's like, you're having surgery in three days. She's like, okay. So she goes and they're like, it's not a big deal, right? She wakes up from the surgery and has face blindness. And she's a portrait artist. There was There's like swelling inside of her brain that's by the part of your brain that like helps you recognize faces. And it's been very interesting because I was like, face blindness, what does that even mean? And it's like the pieces of your, of the people's faces are just kind of like puzzle pieces. They don't like. Really? And she can't even see herself. Like she looks in the mirror and she just can't even see her own face. And this is like an actual thing. And it doesn't apply to anything else, just to faces. Yeah. There's like a part of your brain that like helps you recognize faces. And so she's like becoming better at like paying attention to how people walk and what they sound like. And, you know, like her best friend comes in right after surgery and she's like, I don't know who this is. The friend kept talking. She's like, I'm supposed to know who this is. And then she realizes, oh, it's Sue. Well, it doesn't look like Sue. I've never seen this lady before. Mm. So it's just. That is wild. It's really good. I'm liking it. But she also has a horrible stepsister and not a very good relationship with her stepmother who had. Married her dad six months after her mother died. She's kind of got that going on. But her stepsister like moves into her apartment complex and is trying to steal her boyfriend. It's just funny. I'm enjoying it. So lots of drama. But yeah, it's called Hello Stranger. That sounds really good. It's been, it's just entertaining. But, and I learned about face blindness. And I, at first I was like, huh? How is there a spot in your brain? Okay. There's another example. There's a spot in your brain that helps you recognize face. Seriously. Like, wait, what? And like, wow. anytime you go into surgery like that, like for your brain, you're at the mercy of like them. You know, my husband had brain surgery and they were like, make you sign a paper that says like, you could wake up and you could, all these things could happen. And in the book, I don't know yet. Cause I'm not done with it, but it may resolve. So oh, it's okay. swelling. So like after my husband had, he was having seizures before he had brain surgery. And then after he had brain surgery, he was still having seizures for a little while. Oh. It was just because once they go in there and mess thing with things in your brain, then they're swelling. And so like mm-hmm. after a while, the swelling goes down, then he stopped having seizures. But the doctors were like, oh, he's still having seizures. And I'm like, you guys are doctors. Like, don't you know that there's swelling in there? And oh, interesting. So they weren't even like, oh, yeah, this could happen. Wow. That's mm. they were surprised. Yeah. yeah, that's comforting. You guys are doctors. Yeah. You're brain surgeons. <laughs> I mean, I, at the time, I didn't know either. I was like, I hope yeah. this resolves, but it did. He was in the hospital for like a couple months in and out of the hospital. And another problem he had was they had put him on super strong antibiotics because they didn't know what the infection was. And so they had to like cover everything. Oh. And the antibiotics made him super sick. I mean, so sick. And like he lost so much weight. And the doctors were like, we don't know what's going on. And I kept saying... It's the antibiotics. 
it's the antibiotics. That's what I'm thinking of sick. And I'm like, you guys are doctors. I like, think that there is like overthinking things is very real. Yeah, maybe that's and what they were doing. And it makes me wonder if like the things that are just such common sense to most of us, they just overlook because they think that it's too, they're just overthinking. Like that's yeah. so bizarre. As soon as they took him off the antibiotics, he could eat, start gaining weight again. I know. I was like, yeah. All righty. So yeah, I'm enjoying it. Now I'm like, I need to get ahead though. So I'm finishing books before I talk about them, but I'm like halfway through. So yeah, kind of give you a a good example. All right. So next week we're going to do book two of Christianity. It's also five chapters. It's pretty short. Yeah. Book two, what Christians believe. The last two episodes, we're going to have to talk fast or less because they're bigger. Oh, more chapters. Okay. We're so happy you joined us for this episode. We hope you will join us next week as we discuss Mere Christianity Part 2 by C.S. Lewis. If you have suggestions for books we should read and discuss, please email us at thebestbookspodcast at gmail.com. We would love it if you would leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share our podcast with your friends. We want to inspire and encourage as many people as we can to read out of the best books. As Thoreau says, read the best books first or you may not have a chance to read them at all. See you next week.